There are times when showing grace is the wrong thing to do. There are times, I think we're even aware of this, we can even have a sense of it, where grace is extended and we think, wait a minute, there needs to be justice. And I think it's important as we come into this text this evening to see that sometimes showing grace is not gracious at all. And that's where we're at in 2 Samuel chapter 14. In 2 Samuel 14, we have coming off of this problem that is in David's life. In chapter 13, we have Absalom who has fled away because he has committed premeditated murder. He's done this because his sister has been raped by his half-brother Amnon, and he plots his death and then goes about successfully killing him and running away. And chapter 13 ended by saying, but David's heart longed for Absalom. And we noted that essentially we are seeing a torn David. That this is David's son and his heart is compromised. He desires his son, but his son has done something worthy of death. And so what is David going to do? What is David ultimately going to do in trying to bring about justice while at the same time dealing with his son And not only is his heart compromised because it's his son, but his heart is compromised because he's done the same things. He also has murdered a man, and now his son has done likewise. And so that brings us to 2 Samuel 14, where we're going to see David then ultimately with the problem. Now, what is curious about how the chapter opens is that we're told that David's commander, Joab, knows that David's heart is going out to Absalom, and Joab wants to bring Absalom back. As you read this, We have no idea why Joab cares. We don't know why Joab would want to stick his foot in this and get involved in this mess at all. But for whatever reason, Joab seems to have an intensity that he wants Absalom to come back. Maybe he thinks that Absalom should be the next one on the throne or whatever it is. We don't know. But Joab decides the way he's going to get Absalom to come back is he's going to get this wise, crafty woman to go to David and tell David a story. It's not a true story, but she's going to pretend that it is. And so she gets dressed up in these mourning garments, gets herself looking like she's been weeping and wailing for the loss of her sons. And so she comes to David, she approaches the king and says, Save me, O king. David says, Well, what's the problem? Well, here's the problem. I have two sons and they were quarreling in the field. And in the midst of their quarreling, one killed another. And my clan now wants to kill my other son for killing that son. And the reason why that's a problem is because that's my final son. And where will the inheritance go? And how will I be cared for if the clan goes ahead and executes justice against my other son? And so, David, I need you to intervene and do something so that my son will be spared. What's interesting, David says, all right, I'll think about it and I'll render my judgment later. 
And she says, no, no, (laughs) I need an answer now. I need you to render judgment now, because if you don't do something now, my son is going to die. And so finally, he relents there at the end of verse 11 and says, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. It is interesting as she tells the story that it seems that Joab has decided to take a page out of David's earlier playbooks. Because remember, David had to change a heart when Nathan approached David and told a story. And you remember, Abigail had approached David and flattered and spoke of what a great king he's going to be and and all of that. And so now you kind of have a similar thing happening. Let's go to David and pretend that we have this real important circumstance going on to try to get David to render a judgment so that he will bring Absalom back. So after saying now to this woman, okay, your son will live. Notice what happens in verse 12. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, Speak. And the woman said, Why have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We all must die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid and your servant thought I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought the word of my Lord, the king will set me at rest for my Lord. The king is like an angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord, your God be with you. And so she says, all right. You have granted the request of my son. Why don't you do it to your son whom you've banished? And I want you to hear the logic that she's portraying as she goes through this. First, you will notice she simply says in verse 14, we all must die. Logic point number one. You know what? We all must die. Essentially, I believe the argument is life is too short for this. You know, we're all going to die. And so why are you so upset about Absalom? I mean, we're all going to die one day anyway, and you need to just go ahead and do something about it while you can. She continues in verse 14, where she says, we are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Essentially, what's done is done. You know, you can't change the past. You can't fix what's happened. What's our proverb? You can't cry over spilled milk. That's basically what she says. It's like water on the ground. You can't pick it back up again. You're not going to be able to, to restore it. So in the same way regarding Absalom, what's done is done. It is what it is. And simply then you just should have him come back. Not only that, you will notice that she continues in verse 14 and basically says that God is a restorer. 
God makes a way for the outcast to be restored. God will bring the banished back. And so sure, he's been an outcast, but there needs to be grace. There needs to be restoration. There needs to be an opportunity to bring him back. And then finally, you might have noticed how she ended it with pure flattery by simply saying, my Lord, the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. You are so wise, king, and you have heard my logic. And this is what I've asked of you to do. It is interesting in in verse 19, David's immediate reaction is, all right, tell me truthfully, did Joab put you up to this? (laughs) You read that and go, well, David obviously is knowing that Joab has concern about this after she does all of this. His first response is, all right, you better tell me if Joab's behind this. And she says, yes, it is. It is certainly Joab who is behind all of this. But what I want you to pay attention to is in all of the logic that she uses and half-truths that she tells, it sounds good. I mean, think about what she says. You know, well, you know, life's short. We can't just keep punishing him forever, right? And what's done is done. You know, we just need to let it go and move on. You can't fix the past. And well, you know, God is is a gracious God. And you know that God brings outcasts and banished people back. Why, Why wouldn't you? I want you to see how what she argues and the story she tells and the logic that she presents sounds right. It sounds convincing. It's compelling. In fact... What we're going to notice with with David's response is it's going to compel David to respond and bring Absalom back. But I want you to think about how untrue her logic is when it comes to comparing it to God's logic. Does God ever say when it comes to sin, oh, well, what's done is done. It is what it is, so, you know, might as well just move on. (laughs) That's not how God ever operates. God never lays that out and says, oh, well, there are always consequences to sin. What she is presenting is a God that just says, well, what's done is done. God never says that. God never just says, oh, well, you sinned. What's done is done. Let's just move on, bury it, put it under the carpet, and we'll just carry on. God's logic is not our logic. And not only that, we see the woman telling David that he ought to be gracious regarding the circumstance. God doesn't leave it where the banished can't come back. And we'll explore that a little bit more in a moment as David brings Absalom back. But I think it is important to see that her wisdom about let it go and be gracious and don't cry over spilled milk and it's water spilled on the ground is not the way God looks at sin. We'll come back to that in a minute, but let's notice how this unloads and transpires the rest of the way through this chapter. 
You have David summoning Joab in verse 21 and telling Joab, go ahead and bring back Absalom. Go ahead and tell him that he can come back. However, there is a condition in verse 24, and the condition is he's going to live in his own house. He's not coming to the palace. He's not going to stay here, and he's not going to see me. So it's interesting that you continue to see a conflicted David, I think. All right, I'll bring him back, but he's not restored. Hey, he's not going to be in the house and he's not going to be part of the privileges of the king. He'll dwell in his own house and he will not then see my face. But I want us to see that even with David doing that, you still don't have justice served. David has not dealt with a premeditated murder on Absalom's part. What Absalom has done is a sin. What Absalom has done is wrong. And there is still no justice. And what we are going to see as a trend for David is that he continues to do nothing. And please recognize, not only does he still not doing anything to Absalom, there is a lack of justice for what Absalom has done. But why not do something to, to Joab? For this whole mess and nonsense of putting him in this position in the first place. So, hey, Joab, next time you have a problem, come talk to me. We just get this woman to lie and tell the whole story and the entrapment that is going on around the, the story that she spins. And still David is just doing nothing. This is David's common response now. Now that he has sinned, he is being rendered ineffective from being the judge, the righteous judge, the just judge, that he needs to be as king over his people. And the text, I believe, now bears this out. We'll get to look at some of the problem in chapter 14. It'll come to clear light in chapter 15. But we're going to see Absalom as the problem. And we're going to see why Absalom is a problem on a number of levels. It is an interesting seeming side point that's made about Absalom at this point. We weren't told this earlier. This isn't just some creative storytelling. Well, let me tell you about Absalom. But the location of this information about Absalom is important. Verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance than Absalom. (laughs) He is GQ Israelite. He is the one that everybody goes, look at Absalom. He is a fine looking man from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. There was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, For at the end of every year, he used to cut it when it was heavy on him. He cut it and he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by a king's weight, which had to go do homework on that. It's about five pounds is what that is. So this guy, long flowing hair. Everybody looks at him and once a year, it's a big deal when he cuts his hair and he even weighs it on the scale and it is five pounds today. Oh dear Israel. Absalom's all about his looks. And that's what this paragraph is. 
This paragraph is showing something about the character of Absalom. And what you are seeing in him is something very shallow and surface level about him. We're not told, oh, what a spiritual warrior is or how he trusted in God or things like that. No, here's the big thing to know about Absalom. He looked good. That's what God wants you to know about him. He is a good looking man. And when he had his hair cut, it was a big deal in Israel. And that tells us a lot about him. It tells us a lot about his character. It tells us a lot about ultimately the substance of Absalom. Not only that, we're told in verse 28 that it's two years that goes by where he does not see David. And Absalom is getting upset about that. Absalom, verse 29, calls for Joab and says, well, calls for Joab to come to him because he wants to send a message through Joab to the king about basically, why did you bring me back if I'm not going to be able to see you? Well, Joab doesn't come. So Absalom does the most rational thing that you could possibly think of. If somebody doesn't do what you like, And that is he sends his servants and goes and burns down Joab's field. I mean, that's obviously what you do when people don't do what you like. And that's what he does. Joab comes to Absalom and says, why did you burn my field? And the answer is, well, because you didn't come. I have a message for the king. Like, that's clear logic. (laughs) Again, the character of Absalom is being revealed here at this moment. And then the final nail in the coffin of the character of Absalom that's being depicted here is he says in at the end of verse 32, after explaining the message that he wants to send to David about why did you bring me back from Geshur? Be better for me if I was still there. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. I want you to think about that one for a minute. Joab, you go tell David. I demand to be in his presence. And if he thinks that I'm guilty, then go ahead and have him put me to death. I think there are two ways to look at what he's saying here. And I'm going to put it on the screen as an or slash and because... I think the two ways to look at it don't have to be mutually exclusive, but are both true. And that is, number one, he doesn't think he's guilty. Oh, if there's any guilt against me, well, let's let's just put it before the king and let's see if he says I'm guilty or not. I don't think he thinks he's guilty of anything. I think his conscience is completely fine by the fact that he's killed Amnon. He doesn't care. He's not concerned about that. We have seen no remorse, nothing. And not only that, I believe he's also making a very sharp statement to say, David isn't going to do anything about it anyway. David's not going to do anything about it anyway. Because friends, if he was going to, he would have done it over the past two years. He's been right here back in Jerusalem. You want to bring about justice, he's here. Go ahead and do it. You don't have to chase him down in Gersher to find him. He's here. And I think that's what he's basically saying is one, hey, my conscience is clear. I did what I see that I needed to do. And if David thinks there's a problem, let's see him go ahead and execute justice. Go ahead. Let's see you do something about it, David. 
That seems to be the answer that Absalom has. We'll get to come back to Absalom because he's going to be quite a problem in chapter 15 and chapter 16, but we'll look at that a little bit later. Let's talk a little bit about what the problem is here. What is the issue that we are coming to? And let's let's bring it back the woman with her logic. Why is what she says so faulty? Now she's saying, let's be gracious here. What's done is done. Let's move on. Let's let it go. Why can't we just go ahead and, and press on? Why don't you just bring him back? What's the problem with that? What is the issue? And I submit to you that the big issue that is being illuminated for us in this chapter and becomes imminently clear in chapter 15 is the lack of repentance. It's the lack of repentance. Uh, When she makes the point, because she argues, God restores the banished. God does not automatically restore the outcast. It is simply not true. She's making this as an automatic thing. God restores the banished, so you should just automatically restore the banished. Friends, God does not automatically restore the banished. He restores the repentant. That's the difference. And that's not what Absalom is doing. Absalom is not coming back and saying, I need to come before the king because I know I've done wrong and I need to beg for mercy. None of that. It's, I've done what I've done and if he thinks I'm guilty, let's see him do something about it. He doesn't have a heart of repentance in the slightest. God restores those who turn from their wicked ways. God never communicates to his people. You keep doing what you're doing. You keep living how you're living. God never communicates that he unilaterally overlooks sins. It's just not true. And remember, she made the point that God doesn't take life. I would have thought that would have resonated in David's ear as quite the lie. Because David's child is dead for his sin. And it doesn't take going back through much of Israel's history to see that God will absolutely take life for sin committed. We can go to Korah's rebellion. We can go to the days of the judges. We can go all over the place in Israel's history and say, that's not true. How about how David even came to the throne? Why is David even on the throne except God pronounced judgment on Saul and his sons for their sins? She has said, oh, God doesn't take life for sins. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. The only way then to not be the banished, the only way to not be the outcast is through repentance. And what I want us to see then ultimately is that emotions, emotions so easily cloud proper godly judgment. 
That is, I think, what's at play with David. And I think that's what the woman is trying to play upon. Oh, you want your son back. God's a gracious God. Bring him back. What's done is done. Who can repair it? It's not a big deal. It's okay now. So much time has gone by. It's all good. And I want us to see that we cannot allow our emotions to override what God has told us to do. And I hope that we will appreciate how hard this would be for David. This is David's son. He's already lost two sons. He's now supposed to lose another. And who would want that to happen? And the logic of the woman seems sound. Shouldn't I be gracious to Absalom? Shouldn't I do good to him? Shouldn't I be like God and just overlook the sin? Why not just reconcile? Why not just move on? Why not just let it go? But the thing that's been lacking has been repentance. The thing that has been lacking is the change of heart in Absalom. And I think this then becomes the key issue. Grace without repentance communicates that the sinful behavior is acceptable. And that, I think, is the problem. Without repentance, grace is not gracious. In fact, it's the worst thing that David could do at this moment because it conveys to Absalom, I'm not going to do anything. Everything's okay. Now, he may not think everything is okay, but that's what comes off. That's what comes across. Grace is not gracious because David is leaving Absalom in rebellion. In rebellion to God and in rebellion to David. As an aside, I think it's important as parents that we recognize you cannot be gracious to your children just to be gracious because it communicates the exact same thing. It communicates your errors are acceptable. It's fine. Go ahead. I'm not going to do anything about it. You know, shame, shame. You shouldn't have done it, but just whatever. That's the same thing that David is doing. Oh, you know, remember, that's what Eli did with his sons. Now, sons, why are you acting like that? We've come full circle now. And David is doing the same thing. Oh, Absalom, you've done wrong. But there is no justice. There is no punishment. There is not doing what God has said to do. Instead, he is going to simply let it go. Grace can only come with repentance over the error that is committed. And thus there must be ultimately justice. And think about this idea just for a moment. Is that ultimately we want justice. I think it is important to see this is why Jesus can't be lenient toward unrepentant sinners. You know, sometimes they well, Jesus is only going to judge the really, 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 really bad people. But everybody else will be okay. That can't happen because it's not justice. It's not right. And furthermore, it would communicate the wrong message. Because God's message to us would be, as long as you don't do something totally heinous, it's okay to be a sinner. Just do whatever you want, but except for the whatever list you think is really bad. Okay, murder, I think that's really bad. But everything else, yeah, I know it's a sin, but God's going to be gracious and lenient. 
It would communicate to us, do what you want. Do whatever. God's not going to do anything. You see, this is why Jesus can't be lenient to unrepentant sinners because it communicates, you'll get away with it. Do whatever you want. It's all going to be fine. And in the same way, we sense that because, friends, we don't want our justice system to do that, do we? Crimes are committed. Do you want every judge just to go, oh, that's okay. What's done is done. Can't pick up water that's spilled on the ground. So it's okay. We'd be irate. And rightly so. Unrepentant sin can not have grace. It's as simple as that. And this is where ultimately where David is failing. That all of the human emotions and all of the logic in the world does not override the fact that grace cannot be given to the unrepentant. It just can't. Justice is needed. Let's press that a little bit further because I want you to notice as well. Time was not a factor either. Absalom has been gone for quite a bit of time. And David allows him to come back in two more years even go by. Does time make a difference that now it's okay that Absalom's not repentant because look how many years it's been? No. Does that matter? Well, you committed the crime and you got away with it long enough and so it's okay because so much time went by? No. We're not even fans of our own system of statute of limitations where you go, wait a minute. What's wrong is wrong. There should be justice that comes. We have a saying that time heals all wounds, but friends, time does not forgive sins. Time may heal all wounds and we might be able to forget and move on, but God never says, as long as time is a factor, then sins are forgiven. Just let enough time go by and it's okay. If I just let you live long enough, you don't need to be repentant. That is not true. It is always true of God that repentance is always, always, always required. Even though years have gone by, What we are seeing is a lack of repentance in Absalom and justice needs to be served. And I hope that we would just see that grace is simply not going to be gracious when we leave people in their sins. That's not helping them. That's really not loving them by implying approval is not for their own good. And all of us know why we want to do this. It's easy to ignore people's sins because we don't want to deal with the problem. We love the person. We don't want to have to bring it up. We care about them just like David cares for his own son. And so I don't want to have to deal with that. It's uncomfortable. I don't want there to be a separation. I don't want there to be a confrontation. We all sense that. I I hate confrontation. I will run from confrontation if I can because we just, I don't like it. Can we all just get along and be nice? And sometimes we take that to the point when it comes to sin and we just go, well, let's just not bring it up. Let's just do nothing. We won't say anything. We won't confront. We'll just let time go by and we'll all forget. We can't do that. 
time does not erase sins. Repentance is required. And if we act like people are fine in their condition, that grace that we are giving them is the worst thing we can do. It is not gracious. It condemns them. And they don't even know it. They think they're fine when they're really not. That's going to be the setup for the fail of Absalom that we'll see Lord willing next week. But I want you to notice Jesus said the same thing as we come to a close. It's a passage you probably know pretty well. And I want you to pay attention to how Jesus says this. In Matthew 18 and verse 15, he says, If your brother sins against you, you just let it go and don't bring it up because it's water under the bridge and it's all going to be okay. Just let time go by. Be gracious. No. If there's a sin, go and tell him his fault. See, you can't just say, be gracious. Let it go. Because you're going to leave the person in their sin. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you. And that every charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, then tell it to the church. Why the persistence? Because we can't just say, let's be gracious to unrepentant sin. You just can't. There's a responsibility that's given to us that we have to say if we were in David's shoes, Absalom, here's what God's law says about what you've done. And I can't just let you live here in Jerusalem like everything's okay because it's not. You killed somebody. It was premeditated murder. And you need to go through the Israel court system and be found guilty for what you've done. That's what needed to happen. And him being gracious and following the logic of this wise woman who spins the story is actually the worst thing that he could have done. And so grace is only grace when sin is repented from. And think about it. When does God extend grace? When we come to Him, poor in spirit, broken by our sins, repentant over what we've done. That's when God extends grace. But not if we say, you know what, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Live how I want to live. Be what I want to be. Do whatever I want. And you all should just be fine with that. God's not fine with that. And there is no graciousness on our part if we allow people to think that way. Let's go to God in prayer and pray for the wisdom to apply what we see in this text. Our Heavenly Father... It is such a challenging thing to have the wisdom to speak into the hearts of people regarding 
their sins, and their lack of repentance. Lord, I pray that you would grant us wisdom and grant us courage to always stand on what your word says about what needs to happen regarding sin. That we would stand on your word about what sin is and uphold that as the true line and true definition. Lord, we need courage and boldness because it is hard to confront. It is hard to take a stand. And that is certainly true all the more, Lord, in our culture today that pushes so hard against your truth, pushes so hard against your light and your ways. So, Lord, give us wisdom, give us boldness, give us courage, and give us hearts that desire to see people who repent and come to you. Help us to not simply overlook sins, but be able to speak truth in a way to people so that they will see their sin, come to the knowledge of the truth, and return to you. Lord, we pray that our sins would not blind us and that our emotions would not block us from bringing about truth to people. We are full of sins. And sometimes it is hard for us to see how to go forward in talking to other people about sins, Lord, because we are so sinful. And thus, Lord, we thank you for your mercy and grace. Because we understand that it is only because of your desire of our repentance and because of your son that you receive us back. And so, Lord, give us repentant hearts. Give us spirits of gentleness. Give us courage to speak your truth. and Help us to shine your light to those who need to see so that eyes are opened, hearts are changed, and that you're glorified through it. In Jesus' name, amen.